Welcome to the Real Truth Matters podcast. I'm Dan Harder, your host. The RTM podcast is all about showing you how to live in biblical spirituality, demonstrating where the Bible and real life intersect. And now, here's Real Truth Matters founder and director, Michael Durham. In today's episode, I want to pick up a theme we've mentioned and move it in a different direction. I want to discuss special moves or outpourings of God on His people. Many call these movements of God's Spirit working in powerful ways revivals. The word revival has become a catchphrase. It's something of a slogan among evangelicals, a word that doesn't really mean much of anything. It can mean a special meeting where a guest speaker is invited to preach to a church or a group of churches meeting for Special services, the word may refer to some meetings held under a tent or describe a large influx of sinners into the Christian faith. Some look down their religious noses and frown on the word, believing that such event called revivals are unfortunate displays of emotionalism by the less learned. We bandy the word about, talking past each other, not truly understanding what is said because we're working with our own definition of the word revival. Well, I want to talk about this word with you today. So, let's begin by understanding what does the word truly mean, and I would suggest that we start by discussing what it doesn't mean. I've discovered that defining what a word or a concept doesn't mean clears the air and the confusion. So first, revival is not a specially designated meeting. Just calling a meeting a revival does not make it so. The folk attending may desire for revival to occur, but the meeting itself does not guarantee a revival. A special speaker, no matter how gifted or the best music, is not the essential elements for revival. Neither is revival religious excitement. Such excitement may be the result of a revival, but you can have religious excitement without having a revival. The presence of great emotion is no definitive sign that God is working. Again, God demonstrating His glory among His people may create overwhelming emotion, but such should not be considered the evidence of revival. Next. Revival is not revivalism either. Revivalism is the science of promoting and producing what men call revivals by human power. By the time America was experiencing its second great awakening from 1795 to 1835, a young lawyer in New York State, Charles Finney, was converted. He began his preaching ministry in 1824 and grew in popularity so that by his zenith in the 1830s, he was known in the Western world as a man who could produce revival wherever he went. Finney had popularized what became known as the New Measures. Finney advocated that revival is not the product of the sovereign will of God, No, it's the result of a man fulfilling the necessary requirements. You see, up to this time, the prevailing belief was that no one could produce revivals. They were the labor, the work of God alone dispensing his power and spirit as he deemed wise. Finney came along preaching that God was always ready to give revival if a man will only do his duty. Finney's new measures were based upon his errant views of God and grace. He repudiated, rejected, 
that salvation is a work of God, meaning a sinner cannot be saved unless God gives the new birth. Finney argued that a man can be saved at any point if he would just simply want to be saved. Therefore, he would call upon his audience to stand up, come forward, and sit on an anxious bench. And by doing so, they were proclaiming that they had chosen Christ and his forgiveness. And so this was the earliest form of the invitational system that's so prevalent today. Hence, Finney is called the father of revivalism. In 1835, he published a book outlining all his techniques to get up a revival. He called it Lectures on Revival. The book found worldwide acceptance, and hence, revivalism spread. It birthed the ministries of D.L. Moody, Billy Sunday, and Billy Graham. But interestingly enough, once Finney's book on revival was published and received by clergymen at large, America has not experienced anything like the earlier awakenings or revivals. The only exception is the 1859 prayer revival, which was not the result of Finney's techniques. Rather, Businessmen gathered during the noon hour to pray, and God suddenly came. Since then, nothing has historically happened that's been called a revival, a major move of God that impacted society and nation and drawn in masses of conversions. That has not taken place since then. Of course, there have been smaller and lesser works of God's Spirit bringing in more than usual numbers of sinners, but nothing that rattled the nation turned a society towards God. So, paradoxically, the father of revivalism brought an end to genuine revivals. And in its place has sprung up many roots that have defiled rather than revived God's people. Well, lastly, revival is not a stirring among the non-Christians that leads to a large number of conversions, even though this is the way the word is often used, and as I have used it already in this episode. Reread of the great 1859 revival or the 1904-05 Welch revival. And we think this is what revival must be, the salvation of large numbers of people to the point that even society is impacted and changed by it. It's reported that in the Great Welch Revival of 1904-05, that over 200,000 people came to Christ. Policemen had nothing to do because nobody was committing crimes. It's not a revival simply because dozens, scores, hundreds, or thousands of people are converted. Many of the church's great heroes lived in times when such things occurred. Jonathan Edwards, George Whitfield, Gibbert, Tennant, and Samuel Davies were all contemporaries and experienced what historians call America's first great awakening. The Wesley brothers, John and Charles, experienced something very similar and simultaneously in England. It's called the 18th century English Revival. Correspondingly, Other mighty moves of God took place at the very same time in the British Isles of Wales and Scotland. Men like Daniel Rowland and Hal Harris led the way as these countries experienced tremendous conversions that influenced the culture. Historians say the great English revival of the 18th century kept 
England from falling into the same cultural revolution, bloody revolution that France fell into. However, no matter how significant these events were, they were not revivals. It's safe to say that many, if not all, the above-mentioned extraordinary outpourings of the Holy Spirit began as revivals. They started as true revivals and evolved into mighty awakenings, meaning that saints and local churches that had become lackluster and dull in their affection for Christ experienced spiritual renewal. This led to the Spirit's work outside of the local churches among the unconverted, and, as a result, large numbers experienced an awakening from their sins. Now, friend, that's the work of conviction of the Holy Spirit. Sinners came to know the great weight of their guilt before God, and they rejoiced in the message of the gospel. And that happened wholesale, as we have been already describing to you. Hundreds, thousands of people coming to Christ in a short matter of time. Now, I don't object to calling these amazing awakenings revivals. I often do so myself, simply out of habit, because this is how they've come to be known. But it does create confusion about genuine revival. Let me explain. Throughout periods of church history, there have been long seasons of drought and little fruitfulness. At certain low points, when Christianity seemed almost snuffed out, nothing but a smoking wick left. God would fan the dying ember and pour out His Holy Spirit and power and much grace. Now, during these periods of blessing, many souls would be swept up by the current of the Spirit and be carried into the kingdom. Oh, what blessed seasons these must have been for those who experienced them. But after the season of blessing, the churches would return to Leaner times where men were bidden to walk merely by faith without much experience of the abiding manifested presence of God. Therefore, students of revival and church history conclude that because most of church history has been dominated by ordinary seasons rather than these extraordinary seasons, that revivals are not the norm. The days of little demonstration of God's power are considered the Christian norm. But that is where I disagree. It might seem an accurate analysis of the data of history, but it sadly falls short of the New Testament statement of what is Christianity. I would agree that there are greater periods of harvest, times when many more souls are brought into the church, but concerning the state of the spiritual condition of Christians, the conclusion of some historians and even revivalists are just flatly wrong. They would have us believe that following Christ is characterized by monotony and the ordinary. The state of the New Testament Christian is in a low state more than it is in a high state. Well, my dear friend, the state of New Testament, biblical Christianity is far better than that. Therefore, I think it wise to make a distinction between the words revival and awakening. During awakenings, thousands are ushered into the kingdom of God in a relatively short period of time. Another term for these awakenings is a great outpouring of the Spirit. 
As we see in the early chapters of Acts, on the day of Pentecost, 3,000 were saved in one day, 5,000 another day. What would happen to any local church if you saw just 1% of those numbers saved in one day? That would be 30 to 50 souls. It would be considered beyond unusual. And awakenings are just that, unusual, extraordinary. They were the exception in the book of Acts as they are today. You see, from the middle of the book of Acts to its end, you no longer see thousands being saved in one day or ten days or even perhaps a hundred days. Such numbers did not occur as they did in the beginning of the book. Great and surprising outpourings of the Spirit upon the unconverted are not common nor ordinary. That's why they're called exceptional. The notable Jonathan Edwards, one of God's chief instruments during America's first Great Awakening, wrote a book recounting the events of that amazing work of the Spirit. He titled it, A Faithful Narrative of the Surprising Work of God. These works of God are both surprising and sovereign. You just cannot predict them nor manufacture them. They are a demonstration of the power of God as He determines to manifest them. Now, revival is something else altogether. Revival is a work of God. But the Christian's desire and will is involved in that work. Therefore, I say, you can experience revival any time you desire. Revival is not an outpouring of the Spirit upon the unconverted that ushers them into the kingdom in mass. No, no. Instead, a revival is an outpouring of the Spirit upon the children of God who are not living normal Christianity. And that work of the Spirit is always available to the child of God. This is where Finney was completely wrong. He confused the work of revival with the evangelism of the sinner. He believed that if the sinner would desire God's free offer of salvation, they could be saved. Well, it's true that if a sinner genuinely desires God and His grace, he can be saved. No one is saved without the desire to come to Christ. But the question that Finney answered wrongly is, how can the sinner desire God unless God first implants the desire in the ungodly? The correct answer is he or she cannot. It's impossible. But for the Christian, that desire for God's already implanted because of God's gracious and sovereign act of taking out the old God-hating heart and replacing it with a new heart that loves God and has God's law written upon it, the new believer has a heart inclined towards the Lord. God implants within each of His people new affections and desires. This is the promise of the new covenant. Listen to God through his prophet. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. Ezekiel chapter 36 verses 25 and 27. God has promised to sanctify us, to cleanse us, to cause us, to walk righteously before Him. And more importantly, He's covenanted to conform us to the image of His blessed Son, for whom He foreknew, He also predestined 
to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Romans chapter 8, verse 29. The Lord will keep his covenant with you, sir, and his promised intention will come to pass. You and I will be perfectly conformed to the Son, and we will be perfected and glorified. However, it's very wrong to think that the Christian will consistently and perpetually always walk in the fullness of the Spirit. Now, I don't minimize the covenantal promise of God to His children. I'm just simply acknowledging what you know by experience, that you do not continually, without interruption, live by the power of the Holy Spirit. Unfortunately, there are days and seasons of drifting, declining, and digression. We experience spiritual dullness and dryness. We succumb to temptations, and our hearts become fascinated with lesser delights. Therefore, we need revival. Revival is a word that means to restore, to return to strength or health, or to renew. Now, notice the prefix on the words I'm using to define revival. Restore, return, renew. They all begin with the prefix re, R-E, which means Again, a sinner cannot be revived. He or she cannot be restored to spiritual life and vigor again since they never experienced it. The unconverted cannot return to God when they've never been united to God. You cannot revive the dead. You can only resurrect the dead. The sinner is born dead in trespass and sin. The life of God has never dwelt within the unbeliever. To be lost in sin is to be dead. To God. Therefore, revival is not for the sinner. It's for the saint. The objective of revival is the saint to return to what the New Testament would call normal Christianity. Revival is not extraordinary and above the norm. For Christians, it should be the norm. In other words, all revival does is bring us up to the norm. We are living sadly beneath the norm of true biblical Christianity. I think the greatest reason that the two different events called revival and awakenings have been compressed into the same definition is that almost with few exceptions, every awakening began as a result of a local church experiencing corporate revival. That's why the word revival is used for these extraordinary seasons of great supernatural evangelism and missions. They have often gone together. It would seem that you can't have a mighty outpouring of the Spirit upon a community until you first have had an outpouring of the Spirit upon the church. But you can have a revival of the church without an awakening of the community. Awakenings seldom occur without the revival of the church, but there have been many of Church revivals that did not lead to an awakening, which proves the sovereignty of God in the pouring out of His Spirit for the harvest. Unfortunately, revival has been confused with the sovereignty of an awakening. Many a good man has said that revivals cannot be produced by men. They are the work of God alone. Well, it is true that any revival of even God's people, the saints, is the work of God. But isn't God willing and waiting for His people to want to be revived? Listen, 
You can have as much of Jesus as you want, and you will always have as much of Jesus as you want. All that's necessary to experience revival is another word that also begins with the letter R. It is the word repent. If you will repent, you can experience what Peter called seasons of refreshing from the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm not saying that there aren't special seasons of blessing. There are, but that does not automatically mean that barrenness and fruitlessness is normal Christianity. Yes, continual spiritual growth is the ideal. In fact, it is God's command. But the biblical evidence suggests that Christians, even in the New Testament, did not live in perpetual spiritual increase. Most Christians live somewhere between the fullness of the promise of the new covenant and complete apostasy. You, as the child of God on this side of heaven, will not reach full perfection while you will not finally fall away either, praise the Lord. Before we reach the final destiny, there is this odd synthesis between being complete in Christ and merely a sinner saved by grace. In the case of whether Christians ever need revival, we need to hear all that the Bible says. The other side of the story is there are situations in the New Testament when believers were living beneath God's intentions. In the first century, church decline did occur, stagnation happened, and maturity sometimes was delayed. There were reasons a prayer for revival to have been on the lips of saints then and now. Reread of the Apostle Paul's concern for the carnality among the Corinthians, and I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual people, but as to carnal, as to babes in Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 1. The writer to the Hebrews expresses similar concerns for his audience. He says, of whom we have much to say and hard to explain since you've become dull of hearing, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God, and you've come to need milk and not solid food. Hebrews chapter 5 verses 11 and 12. In James' epistle, a strong rebuke illustrates great decline and need for revival. Listen to what the apostle argues. Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members you lust and do not have? You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask, you ask, and you do not receive, because you ask amiss. You may spend it on your pleasures, adulterers and adulteresses. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. James chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. But perhaps the greatest evidence to the fact that Christians can live less than the ideal promise of continual vitality and stand in need of revival is in chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation. 
Of the seven churches, only two were faithful in all points and received no rebuke from the Lord Jesus. The others received stern censures of misconduct and spiritual decline. Let me cite just two examples. First, the Lord Jesus reproves the church of Sardis with the diagnosis, I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Revelation chapter 3, verse 1. Second example is the church of Laodicea, to whom Christ says, So then, because you are lukewarm, and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth, because you say I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. That's Revelation chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. There are many other New Testament examples that can be given. Christians can be in a state less desirable and need something of a recovery. Every believer listening is his or her own example of what I'm saying. If you're an exception, I apologize for including you. I have yet to meet the Christian who has not experienced at some point in his walk with God a lessening of fervor, a decline in love, or a dullness of heart. Seasons of discouragement come to many believers. Bouts of unbelief and wanderings in the wilderness of sin should not be commonplace for children of God. But they are not altogether unknown to them either. If these New Testament examples are not evidence of spiritual decline, then what are they? Can we dare call them spiritual progress? Not hardly. Why the threats of removing candlesticks and being an enemy of God if this is not a digression of some sorts? The word revival presupposes a spiritual decline. If I'm in need of revival, it means that instead of progressing in the faith, I've digressed. Contrary to what many would-be divines are saying, true Christianity does not allow for static positions. You are either progressing or regressing, healthy or sick, victorious or defeated. There's no plateau where you neither go forward or backward. When the child of God is not spiritually advancing, he is retreating. It is from this decline he needs a recovery. Now, some think a Christian can find some middle ground where he's not losing ground, but not gaining either. But this, too, is false. The Bible presents the life of a believer as a fight, a constant fight. It's like trying to swim against the current. The moment you tire and decide to float on your back and rest, well, the current takes you back. If you're not resisting, the current of culture will always take you down river. The natural inclination of your flesh is away from God, not towards God. You can never lay down your shield and sword, otherwise you're in trouble. The Apostle Paul warns us that we must maintain the fight. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 13. We are to constantly remain alert and on guard. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. Unfortunately, we're not always sober or vigilant. Sometimes we sleep when we should be awake, as in Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. Spiritual decline occurs 
And it often begins without notice. It has a stealth about it that makes it oh so secretive. Before we know it, we've experienced what the Puritans call declension. And it's from this we need a revival, a recovery, a renewal. And if you don't like the word revival, well, then by all means, call it what you will. But at least allow that there are times when a Christian needs to recover from a spiritual decline. Well, in next week's episode, we'll unpack how the Christian can experience revival and why it is that revival among God's people is not witnessed today. So please, don't miss it. Thank you for joining us today. And if you have any questions, please email them to us at web at realtruthmatters.com. That's web at realtruthmatters.com. On behalf of all of us here at Real Truth Matters Ministries, thank you for tuning in. And may the Lord richly bless you with His love in a real and tangible way. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Real Truth Matters podcast. I hope you can see that Christianity is profoundly experiential, but always based on the objective truth of Scripture. If you have questions or comments, please send them to our email address web at realtruthmatters.com. That's web at realtruthmatters.com. Real Truth Matters podcast, dedicated to biblical spirituality, demonstrating where the Bible and real life intersect.